Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brant. And this episode, we're discussing SST-129, the Elliott Sharp record, Tessellation Row. It's actually Elliott Sharp and Soldier String Quartet. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, Brant, I think Elliott just composed it, but the Soldier String Quartet performs it. But we'll hear more about that with our special guest. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, I know you're right. But yeah, we've got part two of our Elliot Sharp interview tonight, and it's a good one. I'm yeah. very glad we had him because he explains this whole thing. Yeah, and you know what it's called when we've got two Elliot Sharps in a row, hey? Two banger? You better believe it, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, why don't you hit me with some spiels, my man? Okay, Ryan, I decided it's time for a change. So, so I've decided to amalgamate my spiels. So a monster spiel? Yeah. So I have an insane amount of music on my phone. I t- I don't even know how... I, there's hundreds of gigs on my phone. I typically have less than one gig available on my phone. I'm fortunate to have a job that allows me to listen to music all day long. So what I decided to do was what you do with your iPod and go through it alphabetically. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I go through all three of my iPod classics in alphabetical order, and it's about a three-year cycle. Okay. Well, hopefully this doesn't take me three years, but... (laughs) (laughs) So have you been listening to a lot of A's lately? Well, yeah. So... The name the name of my new segment is going to be called "Get This Shit Off My Phone," and <laughs> oh, I love it! So, I'm hoping you know there could be some new releases in there, some recommends to you. There might be some recommends that you have made to me over the course of the podcast that I haven't had a chance to check out yet. Ooh, get that shit off your phone! Yep. There might be some <laughs> albums <laughs> albums that our listeners recommended or guests may have mentioned. Uh, maybe something I heard on a different podcast or read in a book or a magazine. Possibly, Ryan, there might be some perfect albums in there. Ooh, maybe, a myriad possibilities. Maybe some stuff off the SS tree. Hopefully, oh, yeah. hopefully this doesn't end up like my Red Hot Chili Peppers project where I was going to listen to all their later stuff and then I just flaked out on it completely. Okay, so we are in the A's though, Ryan, so I'm going to run this down for you. And you can feel free to interject here on any of this stuff if you like. Okay. This isn't all of it, by the way, either. I just picked out some stuff that I thought, you know, would be cool. Okay, so I listened to an Alan Vega record, which maybe oh, yeah. maybe should be in the V's, but... If it was on my iPod, it'd be in the V's, buddy. I'm sure it would. Probably because of that, well, not probably, definitely because of that podcast I mentioned a week or two ago called No Dogs in Space with the suicide episodes. Right. The one that I listened to is called Power On to Zero Hour, which came out in 1991. I have it on this label called Infinite Zero, which is the reissue label that Henry Rollins and Rick Rubin had in the 90s. It's good. I need to listen to more Alan Vega and maybe some Martin Rev. Do you listen to those guys solo? 
Uh, I have heard, uh, you know, a smattering, but I've never taken a deep dive, ever. Yeah. Okay, then I listened to a record by a band called The Almighty. The album's called so- mm. Soul Destruction, also came out in 1991. They're a Scottish band. Ricky Warwick is the singer. He's currently in this band, Black Star Riders, with Scott Gorham, that kind of reactivated Thin Lizzy and then changed their name to Black Star Riders. Not really into that band, but I... I do like the Almighty quite a bit, though. Very early 90s biker rock sound, kind of like the cult electric era or like Zodiac Mind Warp, that kind of stuff. Here's another one. Amgala Temple, Invisible Airships is the album. Norwegian band, they only have this one album. It's instrumental. It's kind of jazzy kraut rock, awesome players, really good guitar player. It's a bit proggy. You might like that one. Hoping for more from them. This one just came out in 2018. Omgala Temple is the name of the band. Here's a recommend for you, Ryan. I might be okay. saying I might be saying this band wrong. Aluchatistas is how I'm going to say it. It's A H L E U C H A T I S T A S. Of the Body Prone is the album 2009. I actually looked them up on Discogs, and they have a bunch of albums that I haven't heard. The only reason I have this one is it came out on John Zorn's label, Zadik. And I usually usually check out a fair amount of the stuff that's on that label. Which, incidentally, that label's been very quiet lately. They usually put out maybe five to ten albums a year, but it's been really slowed down. And what's the name again? Alucha? Alucha Tistas. Alucha Tistas, okay, and why is it a recommend for me? Okay, well, I'll read you their, this is how they describe themselves. Avant technical post-Beefheart improv core art damage punk rock power trio from Asherville, North Carolina. Yeah, that's worth checking out for sure. Yeah. And then Anthony Perogue, his album Palo Colorado Dream, which came out in 2014 on Cuneiform. We've talked about Anthony before through uh, his band's The Mesthetics and also the that Five Time Surprise record. This is a little Henry. bit... Me- yeah. This is a little bit mellower than those, but still rocks at times. Worth tracking down if you're a fan of his playing, for sure. That should be under letter P, by the way, but yeah, keep going. I know. Okay, well, here's the one that should probably be under C. This one's a perfect record. Alice Cooper, Billion Dollar Babies. Probably my favorite of the original band, for sure. Perfect album. Nice. Okay, Alvin Gibbs... Do you know who Alvin is? It sounds familiar. Why should I know it? Uh, well, played in a zillion bands, most notably probably the UK Subs. He was also okay. in Iggy's band for a Wait. while, and he wrote a great memoir about his time with the Ig. It was originally called Neighborhood Threat, but it was re-released a few years back as Some Weird Sin. And the reason he re-released it is because him and Iggy were both married when he wrote the original one. So he left out a lot, a lot of the really raunchy stuff, but they're both <laughs> since divorced from those women. So he he added some stuff to it. Oh my gosh! Yeah, he had an album that came out in 2018 called Alvin Gibbs and the Disobedient Servants, and it's really good Thunder style rock and roll, a little bit glammy. It's good. Okay, Ryan Ariel Pink. Do you know who he is? Nope. I've checked him out a few times. Couldn't really get into it. There was a big article about him in a recent issue of Shindig magazine because this label 
uh, Mexican Summer has a reissue campaign underway for some of his earlier stuff. So I checked out one of the ones they were kind of really talking up in that article called House Arrest. I really liked it. It's kind of lo-fi rock. It reminds me a little bit of Guided by Voices. You know, it's a total basement recording for sure. Yep, sounds like it. Okay, Ace Fraley, Trouble Walking. You're not a Kiss fan, right? Uh, my kids listen to Kiss, so I it I hear it around the house. Um, but I I like the Melvins or Dinosaur Jr. covering Kiss better than Kiss themselves. Well, I grew up a Kiss fan. Ace was always my fave, and I always have a soft spot for his solo stuff. This is a good one. Trouble Walking, good New York rock with a touch of 90s, 80s hard rock thrown in. Here's one for you, Ryan. All mass nerder. I'm still oh, yeah. I'm still holding out for another all record. Chad Price, in my opinion, doesn't get enough love. So many good songs on that one. I'll get there, Fairweather Friend, Until I Say So, Silly Me, Until Then, Silence. Great record. Yeah, he's he's a great singer. There are great songs. He's just not my favorite. Yeah. Okay, here's of, of the of the all singers. Here's one I'm curious if you've heard of this guy, Ryan. I'm pretty sure I read about this dude in Glenn Phillips' book, which is really good, and we'll be discussing in a month or so, I think, maybe maybe a couple months, when we get to his SST record. He mentions this guy, Arthur Blythe. Do you know who he is? I know the name, but I can't recall why I know it. Man, you're pulling out some, like, really... These are deep in the recesses of my memory. What is, give me the lowdown on this one again. Okay, so he's an American jazz saxophonist. He passed away around in 2017. Started his his career in the mid-70s playing with McCoy Tyner, Gil Evans, many others. Then he started releasing solo albums. The one that he specifically singles out, Glenn does in his book, is called Blythe Spirit. It's kind of post-bop, avant-garde, it's killer. Came out in 1981. I'll check out that for sure. Okay, here's my last one, Ryan. Dave Alvin and Phil Alvin, of course, of the Blasters. Lost Time, 2015, came out on Yep Rock. They had released one the, the year prior called Common Ground, which was all covers of Big Bill Brunzi, which is music they'd kind of bonded over as kids. They toured behind that one, had so much fun that they did this one when they got back. It's all covers, but it's really awesome. I love the Blasters. I love Dave Alvin's solo stuff. So it's a no-brainer for me. That's it. Right on. So that's Get This Shit Off My Phone, the A edition. Is that right? Yep. But you know what I think I'm going to do, Ryan? I'm going to save it all up till like maybe I get through A, B, and C, and D. And then I'm going to take all of that off my phone all at once. Just think about how gratifying that's going to be. The second you take it off, you're going to want to listen to something like Deeply Buried in the Bees. Just wait. You think that's so? Why you, that's why you have to get three uh, iPod classics. Mm, that's why. Maybe. <laughs> I'm not going down that road, man. It's pretty uh, It's pretty mind-numbing. It sounds extreme. Yeah. <laughs> okay, what do you have, Ryan? I've got one spiel for you, man, and it is a like a label... Uh, label focused spiel but it's got an sst a few sst connections in fact um and it's a overarching recommend to you have you ever heard of a label called new atlantis records that i just discovered no i don't think so new atlantis records they're located in yellow springs ohio and i was 
turned on to them because of this band Monotrope, which is a uh, instro post-hardcore, uh, post-punk noise type band that I'm I'm really digging these days. But I started uh, I was I was pulling together an order from New Atlantis Records, and to save on the insane shipping, I of course had to check out everyone on the label and see if I was going to get some uh, shipping savings by bundling up the order. Now, there's a couple of other bands on there that I that I have enjoyed for a while. Um, and one is a heavy duty recommend for you, by the way. Okay. Um, there's So I mentioned Monotrope. I like Monotrope. Invisible Things, another band I like. Uh, members from U.S. Maple and Parts and Labor on there. Tygon or Tigon. I don't know how they're pronounced, but kind of a they're they're likely compared to Fugazi quite often that band, but uh, they've got lots of uh, great songs. This band though, I want you to check out, and I'll get to the SST connection in a minute. This band Split Red. Mm. There's a record a record called Serious Heft. Uh, I want you to check out that record and uh, let me know how you think because it's noise rock, but there's insane shredding on it too. Wow, and it's. It says here, uh, for fans of Black Flag, Funkadelic, Amphetamine Reptile, Swizz, St. Vitus, The Melvins, The Jesus Lizard, and then it says, let's do the damn thing. That's how they describe them, and uh, I think you would enjoy them. But this label, New Atlantis Records, also has releases by Henry Kaiser hmm. and also a couple by Elliot Sharp. Interesting. There's a record on here by Elliot Sharp called Momentum Anomaly. There's another one called, I'm going to mispronounce this. I think it's called Accra Campoge or Campoge. So there's a couple of Elliot records on here. There's a Henry Kaiser record. And there's some instro post-hardcore noise on this label. But there's also some avant-garde, jazzy, improv but with a modern twist on it type stuff. And that's where you'll see the Henry stuff, the Elliot stuff come up and a ton of other bands. So not only are Henry and Elliot on this label, but it kind of, when I was digging into this label, it reminded me of a lot of our recent um, releases that we've covered on the show, like even Cruel Frederick. There's some tr uh, some bands on here that kind of have that really far out wild stuff and this label new atlantis records it could almost be like a modern sister label to sst like a new alliance but okay. with um, some crazy stuff on there if if you like uh oh and like some of the stuff on this label is recorded at bc studios there's all sorts of relations and tendrils there so mm. check out new atlantis records there's uh, some crazy stuff there that is really good how have i not heard of this label before yeah man you should check it out okay split red i'll let you know in 18 episodes when we get when i get to the s's <laughs> <laughs> did you did you just do a quick uh, count on the alphabet or what i you couldn't see me using my hands <laughs> <laughs> oh well hey that's it man should we uh get into tessellation row yes history lesson part one 
All right, man. What an intense record, hey? Thank goodness we've got Elliot on here to break it down because I kind of feel like it's a bit above me yeah. at times. Totally, man. Like, I don't listen to a lot of classical music. This this is a classical record, though, right? Well, I mean, it's performed by a string quartet. It's on acoustic instruments. I'm not sure I would jump to call it classical just because of the instrumentation, though. I think it's it's like a genre all to itself, if you ask me, almost. It's, it's for sure avant-garde, but... Yeah. But it can be both of those things. And... I think just the fact that it was composed for someone else to play and the composer is credited on the album cover qualifies it as a classical piece of music, in my mind anyways. I have no reason to disagree. Yeah. I, it doesn't really matter either way. I'm just, I'm just trying to determine whether this is our first classical album on SST. It might be. It is definitely... It definitely sounds like no other album before it that we've covered. That's for damn sure. Yeah. So you mentioned Ryan the Soldier String Quartet. Are yep. the is the group that plays on it. They were founded by composer and violinist Dave Soldier in nineteen eighty five. Dave Soldier is a stage name. His actual name is David Solzer. He's a neuroscientist and professor at Columbia University Medical Center. They have had many different lineups, a bunch of albums under their own name, starting with 1988's Sequence Girls, which is pretty wild stuff. A bunch of stuff with Elliot. We'll be seeing them again on SST-194, Larynx, and on 232, Hammer, Anvil, and Stirrup. And that is a re-release of this album on CD with an extra track called Hammer, Anvil, and Stirrup. So we'll be seeing this whole album again. Uh, they've recorded with Guided by Voices, John Cale, who they also toured with from 1992 to 1998. And the other members in this version of the band, besides David Soldier, were Laura Seaton, also on violin, Ron Lawrence on viola, and Mary Wooten on cello. Why don't we kick it over to Elliot, Ryan? Let's do it. Let's go over now, Elliot, to Tessellation Row. Soldier String Quartet, was that already a happening thing? Soldier String Quartet existed already, and Dave Soldier was a friend of mine. We played together in various projects over the years and hung out. And he started the String Quartet, and when he started it, he said, listen, I have this group, and we have a concert, and would you write something for us? Well, I said, well, this is great, and I was obsessing over Fibonacci numbers and trying to work out how I could notate what I was playing on guitar using these Fibonacci number-based approaches and began to develop a notation scheme that could work for this and eventually you know, cobbled it together into a score, kind of a graphic score, but a very specific one. It's not abstract at all. Everything that the players do is very precisely determined. And uh, he was very happy with it, and the players uh, dug right into it, performed that, and I recorded, uh, composed a number of other pieces from because I proposed to Greg that he release an album of string quartets, and his attitude was, sure, why not? Which, <laughs> that's an attitude I like very much. Absolutely. So it seems like the centerpiece of Tessellation Row 
or perhaps the the piece that kind of got the ball rolling on the whole project is reiterations well yes and no reiterations is the quartet tessellation row with the addition of a bass part and i had the quartet record the piece three times the score to tessellation row is absolutely the exact same length every time it's played right but the internal detail of it can vary within each module it's it's a set of little modules of varying length so when the players play the piece you can synchronize multiple performances of it because they're the exact same length as long as you're playing to a click or your metronome or a metronome or have a, a good sense of internal time where you have the first version and you listen to that for all the overdubs and then your timing is synchronized so i had the players overdub themselves three times and i had the bassist ratso harris overdub himself twice and so we had this chamber string on orchestra uh, you know around the same time that i was working on the piece a conductor that i had met asked me for a piece for the american composers orchestra and uh, so i decided to make an orchestration and that's how reiterations was created the live version of reiterations i actually was not so happy with because the conductor asked me to bring the two drummers that I was working with a lot, Charles K. Noyes and Bobby Previtt, the drummers in Carbon, have them written into the performance. And as a result, I had to make the string parts. I had to make our parts very, very quiet. Otherwise, they would completely overwhelm the string parts. And uh, so the performance at the Merkin Hall was a little bit bloodless for my taste. And uh, we did a recorded version in the studio, both with the string players alone and then with Charlie and Bobby and I overdubbing our parts. And again, mixed, mixed success on those. Right. The, so in the original Tessellation Row LP, that's uh, why I just included the version of strings alone. How was the track digital created? I know you first performed it on guitar, I believe. Well, it, it came out of uh, my personal experiments on guitar using preparations, using strips of metal intertwined into the strings. And uh, for that, I said, I'm going to apply it to the string quartet. And I had them weave strips of spring steel that I had taken from an old clock into the strings, and I had them playing tapping style, which I was doing a lot of tapping polyrhythms. It's an algorithmic score in the sense that it's a set of simple instructions and six composed rhythms, and the players move from one set of rhythms to the other, and they can improvise their tapping as long as it remains within a groove from right. one composed module to the next. Okay, so... I'm wondering if you can explain to me in layman's terms, because I read the liner notes that come with the LP. Uh, on the flip side to it, there is, I guess, I don't know if I can use the word sheet music for the piece. Explain to me in layman terms what how you use algorithms and Fibonacci numbers to, crea okay, to well, create this piece. Yeah, well, the Fibonacci numbers are only used in tessellation row and reiterations. Okay. Yeah, each, each piece, in a way, had its own operating system, its own identity. 
So tessellation row and Fibonacci numbers used rhythms. Fibonacci series is uh, you take a zero and one and sum them, then keep summing the two numbers, the number and its predecessor to, so zero plus one equals one, one plus one is two, two plus one is three, three plus two is five, eight, 13, 21, 34, you know, on and on. And I made ratios of them, and I used those ratios and then those patterns of numbers to create rhythms and to create structures. So that's how um, tessellation row and reiterations was created. With digital, I just had six rhythms that were basically clave rhythms, you know, came out of my studies of Afro-Cuban music and African music. And the players tap out those six those rhythms one at a time. They each start on the first rhythm, then they improvise to get to the next rhythm, and so on. And they're always grooving. And that's just the instruction set for digital, a very simple instruction set. How would they have read, for example, the the track Reiterations? How would the string quartet, what did the sheet music that you gave them look like? Did it look like okay, regular well, sheet well, music? The, well, the, no, no, it looks like boxes. Right. There are boxes with numbers, and the numbers tell them which string to play on, which everything is written so that they play on either open strings or touching the harmonics of the strings without stopping the notes. So it's always, it, they're never actually playing a note in a traditional way. It's all open strings or harmonics. Okay. Or partial or a mix of them. So I developed a notation system to indicate that. And the boxes, the little modules there, each give an instruction to the players. You play this with an open string or you play this with a partial open string or you play this moving your finger, touching the string lightly toward the bridge or away from the bridge. So it's just basically instructions for how to make these sounds. And it's very simple once you get the hang of it. Ironically, I mean, when I gave the score to reiterations, you know, using the same system, to the conductor, he was horrified. I mean, he was—he wasn't horrified because he liked—he liked what I did, but right. he was horrified at what the reaction would be from the, the string players in the orchestra because they're quite conservative. And he renotated it in traditional notation, which I, I felt kind of missed a lot of aspects of it. Later, I had to rewrite the piece for the Ensemble Moderne in uh, frankfurt and i used traditional notation and that was good it, it, it really I, I found that i could make the notation work and, and it still maintained the essence of the piece which i was, I was it was a lesson for me so the players they see the modules they know how many bars to repeat what strings to play on what rhythms to play on they can make loops of varying lengths also indicated by numbers so it's all just a very simple notation system for someone who never learned to read music, they could play this piece if they were willing to work with the numbers. Right. So that system, you know, the little boxes with the numbers, was there a precedent for that? Or did you, was this your, your idea? This was my own uh, cracked idea. I mean, <laughs> there are many composers that have come up with various forms of non-traditional notation. Right for music, including graphic notation, going back to the ancient Egyptians. You know, so really, there's a huge tradition of it. I mean, regular notation is graphic notation. It's basically assigning verticality to the dots on 
of staff. So you're just creating a special, specialized representation of the sound spectrum. And the tuning of the instruments, was it, did you alter the tuning? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was also tuned using Fibonacci numbers, using these ratios, where 2 to 1 is an octave, 3 to 2 is a perfect fifth, 5 to 3 is a justing tone to major 6, and 8 to 5 is a justing tone to minor 6. Now, the conductor, again, of uh, the ACO was even more horrified that uh, I had asked that the instruments be retuned, and he said, oh, they're never going to go for this. And in fact, they forced the orchestra to rent them cheap instruments <laughs> because they said this tuning would destroy their instruments, which, which it wouldn't, you know. It was, right. it was bullshit, you know. So what can you do? So when you're writing this, how do you, how do you know you just hear it in your in your mind yeah i mean you develop it's one of the things that i've tried to do as a composer all my life is to hear in the abstract so i could compose away from an instrument you know i wanted to compose not necessarily using an instrument but just going right translating the sound from what i hear in my inner ear to what's on paper or to whatever you have to use to communicate the sound to the musicians it's it's a lot of his practice. A lot of it's just making correlations. Well, here's this sound that I've worked on so many times that I've heard so many times, and it, I now I understand completely how it connects to an image or a, or a set of words or a concept. You know, a lot of this comes from Walter Benjamin, the philosopher Walter Benjamin's concept of translation, the notion of translating any idea. If for him it was translating the poetry of Baudelaire into German, not to make a word-to-word correspondence, but to capture the essence of, of whatever it is and make that what you make in your final tr- translation, what you present in your translation. And you recorded this with Martin B.C. in B.C. Studios. What was yes. that like? Yes. Was it difficult to capture the sounds? Not so much, because the string quartet, I mean, they're, they're great players, you know, and they were well rehearsed. We've just had them set up in a room with a stereo mic pair overhead. I had each of the players close mic'd as well, plus they had pickups. And I had the pickups going through tube screamers, which would generate a lot of harmonics. Right. You know, the guitar players use them to generate uh, distortion. But I was using it to generate not a lot of distortion, just enough that there would be some additional harmonics. And the tube screamers introduced a tiny bit of delay so when you mix them in with the acoustic sounds, it, it made it sound like as if there was twice as many instruments. So that studio version of reiterations sounded very much like an orchestra, like there were many more players in the room than there were actually there playing. All right, moving past this one, we're going to see you a few more times on our podcast. You're on SST 167, the Semantics album, Bone of Contention. Right. I'm wondering if you can give us just a little a teaser of what we're in store for there. Sure. Well, that was a a mixture of compositions and improvising. Two good friends of mine, two great players, Ned Rothenberg on saxophones and Shakuhachi and bass clarinet and Sam Bennett on percussion. And I knew Sam from before New York and Massachusetts, always did his playing. And Ned had a gig at the Cooper Hewitt Museum and he asked Sam and I to play on it. And we got along so well that we said, well, let's make a band. And so that was semantics. So the 
just came out actually it was reissued on CD which had never it, it had never been before on an Austrian label called Klang Gallery I just got a note yesterday from the producer saying that it was now oh, out. Wow. so that's cool uh, Mofungo bugged another set of good friends my girlfriend for a while was playing sax in the band and she brought me into the band as a session player and as a producer and my relationship with the band con continued long after the personal relationship with her deteriorated right but uh great band a mixture of like folk music and uh, no wave which was a combination i liked very much i felt there was a good resonance between those uh, sonic poles Okay, and then another Carbon album. Right, Larynx. Yeah. Which was kind of the culmination of my work with Fibonacci numbers and fractal geometry. It was the orchestral version of Carbon with four drummers, a string quartet, and four musicians playing my self-constructed instruments, plus myself on the double neck and triggering samples and playing reeds. Yeah, it was a big, loud band. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to ask you a question that I asked Henry Kaiser when we had him on the show, because you okay. both have just insane discographies. If someone listening to this show wants to get into Elliot Sharp, past these albums, where would you point them? Where would I point them? That's... You know, I think the SST records are a great start, because some of the material, the Yahoo's record, the Semantics record, has a kind of... Uh, pop sensibility to it. I like the records I did on Enemy Records. There's a couple of Carbon albums. There is the record with Bashir Attar. I mean, to, to keep it simple, that's a good place to start. I'm calling you in your studio. What are you working yes. on right now? Well, a new opera. I'm working, again, again, I'm multi working on a few things. I always multitask because I find that one project feeds another. So I'm working on a record remotely with it, the French harpist and vocalist Hélène Brechon. We have a duo called Chanson de Crepuscule, Songs of the Dusk. We did one record on the um, Public Eyesore label, and we're working on another one now. She's in Paris and in a house outside of Paris, you know, because of the quarantine there. Right. So we're sending tracks back and forth. I'm working on a new opera called Die Grosseste Fugue, The Greatest Fugue, that's supposed to premiere in November in Bonn, Germany, as part of the 250th anniversary of Beethoven's birth. And it's an opera about Beethoven's composing of the Grosse Fuga, which is one of my favorite pieces of music and a work that I consider to be the first contemporary string quartet. And the idea of the opera is that he's composing it as a result of his mental deterioration because of his kind of personal delusion is uh, the stress of his deafness, very possibly syphilis. I mean, he he would he led a very distressed life, and uh, so I'm, I've just finished the libretto of that. I've written most of the music. It's being written for one vocalist, Nicholas Isherwood, who has worked with Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, who I've worked with a lot, and a string quartet and electroacoustic tracks. There'll be video from my partner, Janine Higgins, who most of my recent operas have set and setting done by her on video. It's a very important part of the work. And so I have to pretty much have the score completed by the end of May. And 
I'm except for the electroacoustic part. So I'm just kind of homing in on the last aspects of that score, working on uh, another remote project with three great musicians with Peyton McDonald, who's an orchestral percussionist who originated this project, Colin Stetson, the saxophonist and clarinetist, and Billy Martin, the drummer from Modesty Martin and Wood. So we're sending tracks back and forth to each other as well. Right on. Elliot, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Brent. All right. As Frank Zappa said, the present day composer refuses to die. And Elliot sure proves that to be the case on this wild, intense record. And my mind could barely manage some of the knowledge that Elliot was dropping to explain how he came to compose it and pull this thing together. Yeah, I mean, I probably sound like an idiot in the interview, like trying to understand how you how you actualize something like this because it's so beyond my comprehension. The closest I have, like I don't listen to classical music, the closest I have would be Frank Zappa, who is a composer, right? And when I listen to some of the pieces that he composed in his brain and wrote on a piece of paper and just heard in his mind how it would sound, it just fascinates me that people can do that. Yeah, there is, you know, it's indirect, but to my ears, because I've been such a like almost a lifelong Zappa fan and have dug pretty deep into Zappa-esque stuff and Zappa references. There is that one composer that was very influential to Zappa, Edgar Varese, and there are there are elements in this record that are reminiscent of some of the sounds that you would hear on a Varese record for sure. Mm-hmm. Like just, re- like, you know, created again by by acoustic instruments but sound otherworldly you know yeah i think he does a good job in the interview explaining how he translated it from his inner ear to the page yeah just the thought of him you it's it sounds like he just completely imagined it in his mind and then worked like the sound where you know how it is when you and i used to write songs, you know, you just, you plunk on a string and see if something kind of, you know, oh, I'll put those two notes together or those two chords together. You know, you're just fumbling your way through it. But the way Elliot describes it, like he, he deliberately, you know, went inside his mind and composed it and then documented it, which is, it's beyond me. Well, I can do that. I have written songs in my brain, like guitar riffs entire songs in my mind and gone home and learned to play them on the guitar. But that is completely different from writing a piece of music where all the different instruments are woven together and knowing how they will sound once they're all woven together and being able to write it, (laughs) write it out on a piece of paper. Yeah. And like all music has math in it, but to then use the Fibonacci or Fibonacci numbers, like it's just so out of left field, right? Yeah. And and then to come up with this, it's crazy. Every time I hear that word too, I think of that band that the art band. That's the Zoog's Rift band that where the dude didn't invite him to his wedding, the Fibonacci's. He wrote the song <laughs> Art Band about them. 
Oh, man. <laughs> okay, so I have some stuff here. There's a really good chapter about this album in his book, uh, Irrational Music. Some of this is repeat repeat information from the interview, but maybe said in a, in a bit different way. It was around the time of the recording of Elliot's Fractal album, David Soldier asked him to write a piece of music for his newly formed quartet. Around the same time, Paul Dunkel, the associate conductor of the American Composers Orchestra, commissioned a piece. Tessellation Row was to be for the Soldier String Quartet, and Reiterations was to be for the American Composers Orchestra. Both pieces use Fibonacci series to generate tunings, rhythms, and forms. Elliot says in the book, I created a tablature to transmit the instructions to the players with the modules in the score giving exact rhythms, timing, and the fundamental pitch. At times, the players must loop overtone melodies, their actions moderated by a number indicating loop length. I felt that to maintain the essence of the piece, the score should not use standard notation. My main concern was to create a clear sonic identity. In every performance, the composition would be the same length and have exactly the same structure, though the sonic flux and internal detail could vary greatly. Reiterations was originally conceived to be performed by Elliot on double neck guitar bass, carbon percussionists Bobby Previte and Char Charles K. Noyes, and a string orchestra comprised of 14 violins, four violas, four cellos, and two contrabasses. They performed once with this configuration at Merkin Hall in New York City in June of 1986. The orchestra had a hard time competing with the amplified guitar and drums. Here's from the liner notes to this record. There's some, I don't, I think I asked you, and you don't have them in yours, Ryan, but you can see them up on Discogs. Yeah. I uh, For some reason, my copy is missing the lining notes. Why? Where yeah. are they? <laughs> okay, well, there is, they're really good because there's a diagram of how he wrote this out for the orchestra. And then the other side has some, just some recording notes. Here's some of them. The density of sound produced by the percussion and guitar bass masked much of the sonic activity within the strings. A full orchestra version was recorded, but the final version is the one with strings only. And what he did was he overdubbed the quartet two more times with the contrabass added on two of the dubs. And that bassist is Ratso B. Harris. He's credited as double bass on the record. This is the track reiterations we're talking about here. The instruments were recorded acoustically as well as with contact mics on the bridges through tube screamers to increase the harmonic content. Then he says of the tracks digital, diurnal, and ring toss. They were all composed in December 1986 and may be considered three movements of a single piece. Digital uses a strip of spring steel wool woven into the strings of each instrument near the bridge as a preparation. The instruments are all played with a two-handed hammering technique. The players are given a series of unison rhythms that serve as structural poles for the improvisation. Diurnal is concerned with melodic improvisation through the looping and deconstruction of given pitched material. Ring toss uses open strings and their overtones to generate melody and harmony through looping and deconstruction of given rhythmic material. So that's cool. That's from the liner notes. Do you want to talk about the tracks, Ryan? Yeah, let's do that. History Lesson Part 2 
This album, Ryan, was released on LP and cassette. And like I said, we'll, we'll hear it again later on that ham, Hammer Stirrup Anvil. And also, speaking of Zadok, they released a comp in 2003 of a lot of his st string quartet stuff from 86 through 96. And I believe all of these tracks are on there. Okay. Interesting. I, had you listened to this record before this week? Uh, no. Like I had not either. No, never. No. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's really, really interesting. I appreciate it. I don't love it because it's like not the style of music that, you know, I would go back to often, but, it was uh, real, uh, like a really interesting exploration for me, for sure. Like, yeah, I um, I really enjoyed listening to it, but kind of the same. Oh, thing. me too. Yeah, yeah, me too. I did. It, it just kind of after after the last three episodes, I guess. I just I need a beat. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, maybe that's missing. I do like how SST did these records back to back like this. And I mean, who knows if they actually came out back to back, but I feel like we've seen this a lot Yeah, with artists. Yeah, I do too. You know, that that's another thing too, like having these, it's a happy accident that they put them out back to back and we chose to do this, like not in chronological order in terms of when things were released, but rather in terms of catalog number, because we do come across these things where we get to focus on artists um, for more than one episode and see them evolve from week to week, you know? That's that's pretty cool. Yeah. Track one, Tessellation Row. I, I didn't really write down anything about these tracks because I feel like the liner notes kind of spell it out better than I could, and anything I would have to mention would just be the technical aspect of how it was created because I really... I don't know what I could say about the tracks really yeah i'm not sure i have much to add either but you know some of the things that i heard and it may be because you know way way back when i played a stringed instrument but for me i hear a lot of uh, harmonics as well like so this is people on the neck not fully fretting and they're getting some harmonics while they're bowing the string I believe and, uh, Ryan, if he's if I'm remembering right, that was written into the score. Yeah, yeah, exactly. To tell them you, to do that, and you can hear it. You yeah. can hear it. It's very, it's very dissonant, um, and it creates a ton of layers in the music to my ears. Yeah. But Tessellation Row is in, like the the word that kept coming up in my head over and over listening to it is just the intensity this is an intense record from the first note to the last note yeah 13 minutes long to that piece yeah and it just keeps building and building and you know you feel like like is it gonna let up and it never does and then the uh, the second track on side one is called digital that one's five minutes long that's the one i think he says in the interview that he found the the pieces that he used to prepare the instruments in like a clock or something. All the, uh, the, uh, pieces that were woven in the strings. Yeah. Yeah. Very Sonic youth esque. I might add, I would, I would say, yep. um, it's, it's interesting too. Like it's a percussive song on acoustic instruments, but it's called digital, which I thought was kind of ironic, but you know, it, it kind of gets a good, rhythm going here and there and you can kind of if you listen really really hard you can kind of go okay 
that that is probably on one of the smaller instruments because of the tone that's probably on one of the bigger instruments if you're going from violin to contrabass it's cool that he kind of put the two album centerpieces on the front and end and then these three shorter tracks in between because yep. we're flipping it over now to side two and we're doing diurnal yeah and this one again i mean elliot i think he alludes to this in the interview a bit um but there's you start to hear them using different pressures on the string with their bow and so it creates a lot of like kind of screeching and skronking and scraping and then there's also when they're plucking the strings pizzicato there's a bit of that sprinkled throughout for some sections so again like very dynamic but intense all the way uh track two on side two ring toss this is the shortest one it's only three minutes yeah the squeaking from the kind of from the the string rubbing it it sounds very rubber in this in this song like kind of actual like rubber squeaking squeaky balloons or something just um it's just so odd because you would it's fun you know i guess the thing that gave me some pause when you call this classical is there like almost all snobby classical performers and composers would would say like this type of music does not belong in the classical genre right because it's too out there yeah that's true track three reiterations this one's 13 minutes long i like this one very ominous sounding and foreboding lots of swirling layers again over and over um lots of harmonics again it is you know the culmination of the preceding four tracks lots of little tricks and sounds are all coming together on this final track that's the tube screamers man (laughs) yeah no kidding yeah the green little stomp fox hey i have a all music review from this guy brian alwinick in the delightfully titled tessellation row Elliot Sharp takes the harsh, wonderful, mathematically-themed music he had been writing for and performing with his band Carbon and transfers it to the fine-string quartet led by David Soldier. It's a compelling fit. One could even argue that Sharp's ideas are more clearly limed in this format than in the rough and ready chaos of rock instrumentation. The title track is at once an intensive assault of whip-sawing bowed strings and an easily discernible experiment in unusual tunings and the resultant overtones. Digital uses prepared strings and a two-handed percussive attack to produce a rhythmic piece that shows an odd affinity with Gamlian music and the John Cage prepared piano music of the 1940s, Hmm. while also reminding the listener of his early primal work with Carbon. In this rather harsh context, a composition like Diurnal sounds utterly romantic, awash in sweeps of melodic bowing, a quite beautiful and unique work in Sharp's canon. The closing track, Reiterations, is an enhancement of Tessellation Row multi-tracking the quartet and adding a double-tracked contrabass. It tiptoes on the line between sonic overkill, wherein the massed strings threaten to become an undifferentiated glob of sound and sheer sonic fascination ultimately and happily falling on the latter side of the divide this is one of sharp's most probing and rewarding recordings kicking the art of string quartet writing up the road several yards at least Mm. and how yeah i thought that was a pretty good 
pretty good review, actually. Yeah, very good. Okay, here's from this uh, SST catalog. Few people have stretched the boundaries of modern classical music as far as Elliot Sharp has. With the Soldier String Quartet, he has fashioned an unsettling study of the destructive capabilities of stringed instruments. This collection of incredibly intense pieces will destroy any concepts you have about music. Did we hear this on the No Age? That particular spiel? No, th any of these tracks. Uh, diurnal, I believe. Okay. The artwork, Ryan, designed by Robert Saitsema, typography by Barbara Barg. It says this on those liner notes. The cover image is a Zapote Indian design from the site of Monte Alban in the state of Oaxaca, Mexico. I'm probably pronouncing all of that wrong. Apologies. That insert is really cool, like I mentioned. It's got notes and score excerpts, which show how he wrote this out for the musicians. The thing I noticed about the artwork, Ryan, is it's the same color scheme as Land of the Yehus. Yes. Yeah, there is a bit of a uh, a bit of a connection there for sure. Same yellow and blue. Well, in the inverse, at least on my jacket though, the beige from Land of the Yahoos looks gold on this one. Yeah, Yahoos. I said Yahoos. It's not Yahoos. You did say Yahoos. <laughs> <laughs> you said it in the one I edited too. I took it out. Don't worry. Goddamn Canadians. You only caught yourself saying it once, but you said it a few times and I took them all out. <laughs> all right. Uh, a tessellation is the covering of a plane using one or more ge geometric shapes or tiles with no overlaps or gaps. If you look it up, you'll know exactly what you've seen him before. I assume that the title of this record is a play on the Bob Dylan song, Desolation Row. Yeah, seems obvious there. Ballot result? Let's do it. Ballot result. What do you think, man? All of them are kind of, for me, equally like just avant-garde, crazy, wild, intense. I think I've said intense an intense amount of times on the show here. Well, um, I, I like reiterations, but if we put it on our comp tape, we might have to fade it out to make have enough room on our tape. We don't have enough room. Is this on side A or B, man? I've, well, I don't know. Hopefully it's like at the end of side A, but... Yeah, it better be end of side A. That's where it needs to go. Yeah. Well, Reiterations is, is uh, the culmination, so let's do it. Okay. Hey, thanks, Elliot, for being on the show, man. Yeah, appreciate it. I uh, I feel like, you know, definitely more enriched these last couple of records from hearing it from the man himself. Hey, Ryan, so... You mentioned we've done some some avant-garde stuff in the last couple of weeks. The Cruel Frederick record, the two Elliot Sharp. I think I know what you might need, though. I just, I have a feeling. Maybe maybe some Dinosaur Jr. might, might fix you up. Oh, man. I've been waiting 129 episodes for this one. Yeah. Yeah, next, next week we've got SST-130, the Dinosaur Jr. album. You're living all over me. And, and if you haven't figured it out by now, Brant and I are huge fans and cannot wait. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. 
If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.